Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Good Dog Pod. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Delgado from Good Dog's Health Standards and Research Team. Today, we are here with Maria Morano. She is a registered veterinary technician who works in Ohio. She previously worked at the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine as both a technician and an instructor. She now works in a VCA clinic while also working in veterinary telehealth. Maria is both fear-free and low-stress handling certified, which is why we thought she'd be the perfect candidate to discuss helping our puppies and dogs have good experiences at the veterinarian. So Maria, welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Thanks for having me. Yay. Yeah, we've been planning this for a little while, so I'm really excited to chat with you. I always start with, tell me a little bit about yourself. I like to get to know my guests a little bit. So maybe tell us about how you became a veterinary technician and what you love the most about your job. So I originally, like many others like me, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I loved animals from a young age, and I just thought that working as a veterinarian was the only thing you could do. I learned very quickly once I got into undergrad that that was not the case. I was exposed to some fellow students in the vet tech program and kind of saw what they were learning. And I was like, oh, I like that. Nice. It just seemed really fun because we had animals at the school that we could interact with. It was definitely more hands-on than like the veterinary path. So I was just really attracted to it and ended up loving it, especially once I got into my clinicals. Yeah. And you're registered, right? So that's not just like showing up at a vet clinic and kind of learning the ropes. You have to go through a lot more. Yeah, exactly. And I actually have my bachelor's in animal sciences as well. That was kind of the path that everyone follows to be pre-vet. And then I just continued on and did like a sub-major, major specific in veterinary technology. So I have an associate's and a bachelor's. So it was like, by day doing my animal sciences degree, by night doing my vet tech degree. So it was very busy. But my last year of college was essentially externships where I was working essentially as an RVT, preparing for my boards and everything while working in a clinic and getting the hang of it, like my clinical skills. So it was really fun. Yeah. And what's your favorite thing about your job? There's so many things that I love about being a technician. I love seeing the human and animal bond happen in the room. There's so many times where I see like a client come in with their pet and just the way that they love them is so adorable. (laughs) Or like today I had a client that was being like kind of harassed by her cat in the room. And it was so funny. Like I can just picture them doing that at home every day. Like the cat's (laughs) begging her for food and she's like, he wants treats. (laughs) Just seeing that interaction is just It's so great. And I love seeing it. And I love being a part of it. Very nice. Now you went above and beyond getting your registration as a vet tech and got certified in both fear-free and low stress handling. So to do that, you obviously were interested in that concept. So yeah, what really attracted you to going for that extra certification? So the fear-free thing kind of attracted me in One of my undergrad classes, actually, we had a guest speaker who she was a fear-free certified dog trainer and she came in to just guest lecture one day 
And she started talking about how she works with veterinary staff on how to do training and behavior modification and extrapolate that to the veterinary clinic. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. She did a demonstration in class and I was like, I like that. That is awesome. And so she just kind of taught in a way that made me think and challenged me. And so after that, I sought out certification during a symposium. And so I went to basically like an all-day, nine-hour CE event and became fear-free certified by Dr. Marty Becker was there speaking. Very nice. It was really cool, especially because I was still in school. I hadn't even graduated yet, but I just knew it was something that I was really interested in. And after that, once I was in practice, it essentially became like a requirement for my job at Ohio State. And so I just kept up my certification there. And then they gave me the opportunity to do the low stress handling university through Sophia Yen. Excellent. Yeah, we've had Marty Becker on the podcast and he gave a webinar for Good Dog before. So we're big fans. He's a great guy and very he's inspiring. He's super fun. He's really fun. Yeah, he's definitely fun. Okay, well, let's talk about puppies. That was really the reason we wanted to get you to come chat with us was to really talk about that formative stage. We want our listeners to be able to provide their dogs with lifelong medical care. And we don't want it to be a bad experience. We know that for a lot of pet owners, giving their pets medical care, getting them to the vet clinic, giving them pills, injections, et cetera, can be really stressful. So let's start with, we want to help our breeding community know what they can do before their puppies even go home to set them up for success. So do you have some suggestions for our breeders when they're raising those puppies, what they can do to help them be good patients in the future? Yeah. So there's a ton of different things that breeders do that impact the pet's lifelong. One of the things that I wanted to mention is even before your puppy exits their mother's womb, there are things that they can do. So there are studies that show that prenatal stress does play a factor in puppy behavior and future anxieties and things like that. So keeping mom calm, comfortable, happy, just vibing is kind of the best thing that they can do while the puppies are not even born yet. So that's one thing that happens way early on. And I want to mention that a lot of people think socialization is this thing that happens lifelong, but it really is a period during three to 12 weeks of age. So those weeks three to eight, eight weeks being when most puppies go to a new home, is super, super important that they have positive experiences to novel things. So The most important thing I want to say is having positive experiences. We like to say neutral is not good enough. If they're having a neutral experience, it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. It needs to be positive. So let's dive into that a little bit because I think a lot of the dogma, no pun intended, about puppy socialization was just they have to have a lot of experiences. They have to meet 100 people. They have to experience 100 different things. So like you mentioned, that might be a neutral or even scary or negative experience. So how can people ensure that meeting a new person, hearing a blender for the first time, hearing the doorbell, that that can be positive instead of neutral or scary? It can be really difficult because it takes a lot of controlling the whole environment, which sometimes we just can't do. Yeah, Nobody's perfect, but we want to do our best, especially during those weeks. So exposing them to different things and 
having that be a positive experience by coupling it with food, treats, toys, or kind of redirecting and then maybe slowing it down can be a thing that you can do. They definitely don't need to meet a hundred different people. I think that sometimes people who have really good intentions, especially new puppy owners, have really good intentions on, you know, I want my dog to love everybody. And so I'm going to show them all these people and all these things. But what happens is that they can get really overwhelmed and those neutral experiences, which already aren't good enough, become negative experiences. And then they become fearful of those things in the future. So it's really easy to overwhelm a new puppy, especially when maybe this puppy just got off a flight. It just left all of its litter mates for the first time. And now you're taking it into Lowe's and it's just sitting there like, oh, no, what's happening? So I think it's really important to advocate for your puppy, you know, and take it slow and say, I think my puppy's a little bit scared. Can we approach a little bit slower? Or can you please offer this treat when you approach? Or can you let my puppy approach you first? You know, is really important to, as a pet owner, be an advocate for your baby. Yes, I agree 100%. It's like such an important thing. And people are not always comfortable. I mean, we're not always comfortable doing it for ourselves. And then I think maybe it's easier to do it for our puppies because we do want to protect them. So I remind people, yeah, people want to pet your puppy. Your puppy's very cute. Strangers are going to come up and ask if they can pet your puppy. You don't have to say yes every time someone asks if they can pet your puppy or pick them up, right? We can say no. Always keep in mind what's best for your puppy and how your puppy's doing. So I think that's great. And thinking of the veterinary setting. So let's translate that to not just like socializing them to people or experiences, but the big experience of going to the vet, which hopefully they don't have to do a lot in their life at first, at least. They probably need a few visits with their puppies because they have a lot of vaccines they need, but hopefully not until they're older do they need more frequent visits than yearly. But there's something called a happy visit. And how does that work? And how can someone give their puppies happy vet visits? Some clinics might define happy visits differently, but the way that we, in my experience, what we do with happy visits are vet visits where I don't want to say nothing happens because things are happening, but nothing scary happens, Mm, or at least we try to limit the scary things. So absolutely no pokes. If the pet is really afraid of the scale, we don't get on the scale, or maybe we just have to stand next to the scale or look at the scale or lick some cheese off the scale. So no pokes, no negative experiences and only positive things happen, and then you leave. So this shows our puppies and even our adult dogs that sometimes when you come in, these weird people just give you snacks, and then you go. You don't always get pokes. Lots of offices will offer happy visits for free or at a very low cost for like your first X amount of happy visits are for free. If you are kind of looking for a new vet clinic and you're a new puppy owner, I would call and just ask, like, can I bring my puppy in, you know, for a happy visit before I come in and schedule it for shots? You can do your own happy visits, (laughs) especially if you have an adult dog that maybe is too afraid to even enter the hospital. We've recommended clients like come in, drive into the parking lot, walk around the parking lot, and then turn around and go home. And sometimes that really helps. You just have to tailor it to your specific pet or your specific patient, but that's kind of what a happy visit is. Okay. Is everybody in the clinic like, I'll do the happy visit. I'll do the happy visit. (laughs) That's the thing. We can overwhelm puppies by doing that too. So like everyone's like, oh, a happy visit. That's easy. I just have to go feed treats, right? Then you have five, six, seven vet assistants come in and do the happy visit. And you can tell like the puppy is like, oh, oh no, oh no, more people. 
So my colleague and I, we call each other the puppy police because when we used to work with students at Ohio State, they would bring in a puppy, right? Like they'd bring it to the back and they'd have it in their arms and they'd be like, look at the puppy. And then all of our 18 (laughs) students would be like, ah, puppy. And then we would grab the puppy and we would say, you can't pet the puppy unless you give it a treat. (laughs) So, you know, everyone jokingly (laughs) called us the puppy police because we don't want any shut down puppies in our clinic. (laughs) I can see how easily that could get out of hand. There's a lot of squealing humans very excited about the puppy and the puppy is not happy. Yeah. So it's not a thoughtless, just like bring the puppy in and wee. It's really like more of a controlled experience in an ideal world. Okay, let's talk about at-home preparation. So there are some common areas that dogs might need to be touched throughout their lives. Their ears, their paws for nail trims. What are some ways that owners can help prep their puppies and dogs for this in a positive way at home? So there's a lot of different things that owners can do. And again, I feel like the theme of today is just neutral is not good enough. (laughs) Because I do see a lot of clients who have really, really good intentions. We do that puppy nail trim and they're tugging on their foot, even though they're Mm -hmm. getting snacks and they go, I don't know what's going on. I play with his feet at home. So I think something that's really important is to make sure that you're not just playing with his feet over and over again until he is like hating it, right? Yeah. Instead of desensitizing them to it, you're sensitizing them to it. So you want to keep the sessions just like training sessions, like short, keep them positive and on a good note, things like that to make sure that the handling doesn't become scary or uncomfortable for them. It becomes fun. Some specific areas that I see that we need to handle a lot that are difficult to handle. Our paws, obviously, toenail trims are like one of the biggest phobias in pets. Yeah. Ears can be really hard, especially in patients that have recurring ear infections, cocker spaniels, golden retrievers, dogs like that, that will typically need to have their ears handled, if not for ear infections, but just for regular maintenance because of the breed. Their bum is a really difficult one. We have a lot of pets that are really like, don't touch my bum. They got rectal tempt or they get rectal tempt and they seem to tolerate it at first, but then it becomes really difficult. Looking in the mouth can be hard for a lot of pets. And then looking in the eyes is hard for a lot of pets. So focusing on those things and pairing it with desensitization, all the way up to cooperative care, where it's almost like hands-free, they are consenting to this thing. Say like, here, I give you my paw, and then I eat the treat and you trim my nails. Almost like a zoo animal, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So again, neutral is not good enough. Good things only, positive things only. (laughs) That's the rule. No, it's great. And, you know, we all have to do our best. And it's not like something that happens overnight. It takes time and practice. You know, you touched on this a little bit, but when animals are scared of the vet clinic, they have a stressful experience at the vet. Then we know the owners are much more hesitant about bringing them into the vet in the first place. They'll delay, postpone care. So if your dog is already afraid of the veterinary office, what can we do to get them feeling better about the experience? There's a lot of different things that people can do to help kind of pave that road between, you know, I had all these negative experiences and now I don't even want to enter the hospital. 
And it's hard because then that limits their care. Pet owners don't want to bring their pet in because they don't want to see their pet scared or they are embarrassed by how their pet's acting or they think that their pet's the only one who acts that way. If you're listening, it's not the case. (laughs) You are not Not the outlier. (laughs) You are not alone. My dog is afraid of the vet. And even if you think about it, the portrayal of veterinary medicine and pop culture kind of perpetuates that, right? Like anytime you see the veterinarian in pop culture, it's we're evil, we're scary. The dogs are hiding under the chairs in cartoons. And I think that's just going to take time to change. But as far as having pets work on those fears and phobias, really coupling with a veterinarian that is committed to lifelong care for your pet and having them have the best experience possible. Maybe that doesn't mean that they come in and consent to everything we're doing, but maybe that just means that it's not a terrifying thing that they are dreading. They put the brakes on when you walk in the door. So doing things like happy visits or working on desensitization and counter conditioning at home, the other 364 days that you're not at the vet, And working with your veterinarian for doing maybe some telehealth visits for things that don't need an in-person visit. Or when you do need an in-person visit, having a plan, having a handling plan so that your pet knows what to expect. Utilizing event medications to make that visit a little less scary. Or even we have pets that we sedate every time. And we see over time that they become less and less fearful of the vet because they are having not as many negative experiences. Yeah. And those experiences aren't as extreme either. Exactly. And there are studies that show that patients' fear at the veterinarian do worsen over time. So we keep kind of having bad experience over bad experience over bad experience, and it's just continuing to get worse. So yeah, I think finding a veterinarian, which shouldn't be hard to do. A lot of veterinarians are wanting to make your life easier and wanting to give your pet good care. So sometimes it just takes a little bit of advocating and asking questions. Great. We are with registered veterinary technician, Maria Morano, talking fear-free. You're listening to The Good Dog Pod, and we will be right back. Your Litter A to Z is the leading science-based course for dog breeders. It includes expertly designed 18 modules, checklists, and reports that cover before breeding, getting your bitch pregnant, whelping your litter, and raising your pups. This course usually costs $479, but you can access it for free when you join Good Dog. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. You are listening to the Good Dog Pod, and we are back with Maria Morano. We are talking fear-free puppies and making dogs happy at the vet. And I would love to hear an example of how you've seen Fear Free in action at your clinic and what it can do for both dogs and veterinary staff. Oh, I could talk all day about all the Fear Free wins that I have, and they're so great. I've submitted a couple of stories to the Fear Free blog, so you might see a couple of my stories on there. One that comes to mind is we had a dog that reached out to us when I was working in community practice at Ohio State. Now, we work really closely with the behavior department there, and so sometimes we would get a lot of cases that had been fired from previous clinics, mm-hmm. you know, are really high-end behavior cases. So when you say fired from another clinic, like the veterinarian says, don't bring your dog back. Yes, we will wow. no longer see you, which is really sad, right? It's really sad. But I think that 
that's because they just didn't have the tools or the experience to handle a patient that was as fearful as this pet. And so luckily, you know, we were there. They had sought out behavior services, which is great. When we had come up with a handling plan, now this dog was five years old and had never had blood work, never had a full physical exam in its entire life. And he came in on top dosage of all the preventative, all the event medications that he could come in on. And he came in to the parking lot and he had to park in the large animal parking lot because the small animal parking lot was a no-go for him. So he came in to the large animal parking lot, like basically on the side of the building where no one else was. He had on a calming cap, which is, if you're not familiar, something that goes over their face and covers their eyes, which doesn't completely block out their view, but it just kind of like lowers that visual stimuli. And the owners, we weren't able to go out to the car. The owners actually zoomed us (laughs) in the room. And the dog was on an amount of drugs that he should have been asleep. And he was up and looking, even though he had the calming cap on, he was up and looking. He knew something was up. Mm. And so we had given the owners a drug called Dormosedan, which is actually, I believe, a horse dextomator, basically. But we use it in certain dosages in dogs, oral transmucosally, so it absorbs by them eating it. So that takes about 90 minutes for onset. And so we got him to the point where he was sleepy enough for us to give him injectable IM sedation. Now, this entire time, we're on Zoom with the owners and we're like, is he sleeping yet? Okay, make this noise. Okay, no, he's not asleep yet. (laughs) So it was a very time-consuming appointment. Mm -hmm. We eventually got him sedate enough to where he was laying in the back seat and non-ambulatory, able to lay down and safe to handle. That was the biggest thing is this dog was not safe to handle unless he was sedated. So I walked out there with my colleagues and we had a gurney and we had planned to move him into the hospital to perform all the things. And kind of game time decision, we kind of all look at each other like, let's just leave him in the car. Why do we need to bring him into the hospital? This is silly. So we brought all of our stuff and things. My doctor was able to do a full physical exam. She was able to look in his mouth and his eyes and his ears, listen to his heart, his lungs, feel his abdomen, do a rectal on a five-year-old dog. That's really important. And just do like the best thorough physical exam while he slept through it. Nice. We gave vaccines. I drew blood and we reversed him and they drove off. And... (laughs) I just still remember being out there next to their car. And after we had finished everything, we all did this like silent, like like little happy dance. And the owners were so, so grateful because this dog had never had vet care before. And now we had all of these things. We were able to know like your dog is healthy. Your dog has this blood work. And the best part of it was that we have a plan that works for the future for your dog. And so... The owners, again, were just so thankful and like they were in tears. They were just so thankful and grateful that we gave their dog a chance and worked with what he needed from us. And that's like one of my favorite stories because being able to care for a pet 
that has otherwise been, you know, had the door closed on them or not been able to receive proper vet care because he was just so afraid. Yeah. And we were able to do that for him. So that's one of my favorite things that make all the hard days worth it. Yeah. And that's a great example because it's not just a one size fits all approach that is fear-free or low stress, right? It is really tailoring the approach to that animal. And sometimes it means medication, sometimes it means training, and sometimes it means managing the environment or changing human behavior. So that's really beautiful. And that leads me to a question. I've encountered this a lot in doing behavior work and training and working in different environments, veterinary and non and shelters which is the resistance to the concept of fear-free or low stress and that it's too difficult. We should just hold them down and get it over with, or it takes too long, not necessary, et cetera. So I'm curious what kind of resistance you see to the concepts behind fear-free and low stress handling in both the veterinary clinic and also from pet owners. So unfortunately there is, you're right, there's a lot of resistance to fear-free I'm hoping that it is just because, you know, this is kind of a new thing in veterinary medicine. This is like cutting edge stuff. And there's always going to be the people that are, well, we used to do it this way or this way is better because this is how I've always done it. And there's a lot of things that people just have a lack of understanding of what fear free truly is. They maybe haven't seen it in action or have seen people say that they're practicing fear-free and then it's not really. Some people think that fear-free equals no restraint at all, which is not true. And so they kind of have a resistance to it for that reason. Mm -hmm. Others, and I don't find this in the veterinary setting often from veterinary professionals, but some owners are just old-fashioned and they feel that oh, he's just a dog. You don't have to do all that for him. Like just give him his vaccine. Like it's fine. Others have been doing things that way for just so long and they don't want to change or they're afraid of change. Some feel like it takes too much time. Owners are often just, like I said, embarrassed of how their pet acts. And Mm -hmm. so they'd rather just get it done and over with. The busy day-to-day kind of pushes the time. Like they don't want to have to come back or they don't want to have to make multiple appointments or they don't have the time to work on training at home. Others have kind of fallen into like the outdated dominance theory kind of thing where they think that, well, you know, I'm not going to let him boss me around. I'm not going to listen to my dog or they scold him for growling or something like that. So I think that the way that I found works for me is that I continue fighting the good fight and continue doing what I do and just almost like using fear-free and low-stress handling on the people I interact with. Yeah. So kind of extrapolating that to humans and instead of saying, well, this is a better way. We're going to do it this way. Just saying, I have an idea. Do you mind if I show you this? Or what if we tried it this way? Or... Like, humor me. Let me see. Like, let's try this. Or just having like a really open, transparent conversation with people. But getting to the root of things, like sometimes owners don't want to sedate their animal because sedation's mm-hmm. scary. Yeah. Maybe they had a pet have a negative experience under sedation or something like that. So just kind of having an open, transparent conversation and saying like, I'm sensing some hesitancy. Like, you know, can you tell me what you're nervous about? Tell me what the restraint is. 
are you really busy? Do you have three kids and two jobs and you can only make it like you took vacation to come in here today? So I think it's really important just to be really transparent and see what's holding them back and trying to work with that. And you're setting a great example, I think, through your writing for Fear Free and your strong communication skills and the example you set in your clinic. So that's all fantastic. Thank you. As we get ready to conclude, so she's been present for this interview, but we've not heard from her. But maybe you would like to tell us all about Momo, the hairless Chinese crested. Oh, yes. So Miss Mo, she is, I call her the Chinese crestless (laughs) (laughs) because she's a three pound, completely hairless dog, part for one shoulder tuft of hair. She's my baby. I kind of happened upon her working in a clinic and we had a client who got her at eight weeks and then wanted to move. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with her and it was funny because when I was younger, I always said that I wanted a Great Dane. (laughs) Now you have a three pound dog. Yes, I know. And my mom was like, I like those hairless dogs. They're cute. And I was like, no, I was so not a little dog person. And here I am. (laughs) And I find myself to be a little dog person now. And she is just a little spitfire. She definitely has like some sort of like American hairless terrier or Mexican hairless terrier in her because she is so little, but she has so much personality. She will tell you off. She'll tell you like it is, but she is just the cutest little naked baby. And I love her. Excellent. Well, I think that's a great way to end this. I've seen Momo. She's very cute. I think she's online. Does she have an online presence? She does have an online presence. So she has a Facebook page, Momo the Chinese Crestless. And her Instagram is life's a underscore peach. Okay. Because Momo means peach in Japanese. Ah, that makes sense. Okay. So if you want to see Momo for yourself, you know where to go. Well, thank you so much, Maria, for taking the time to chat with us today about Fear Free and puppies and helping our dogs have better experiences. I wish that everyone could see what I'm seeing right now because Momo is spectacular. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. 